0: A sampler can take a pre-recorded bit of audio and turn it into something you can control with a keyboard, changing the pitch and timing however you want. It's an incredibly powerful musical tool, one that transforms a recording from a finished product into an essential part of the process itself. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music made with samplers, music made without samplers, and music made without samplers that was then sampled by a sampler. The episode you're about to listen to, and indeed, this entire show is supported entirely by listeners. Thanks so much to everyone who helps make this thing happen. There's Patreon and PayPal links down in the show notes if you'd like to chip in. And hey, I just added a new patrons-only podcast feed for bonus stuff, so there's never been a better time to join. On this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the biggest records of the late 1980s, and really one of the biggest pop records of all time, when a superstar in the making teamed up with a powerhouse production duo to change the sound of popular music. I'm excited to get into it, so let's dial up the snare, layer the vocals, and get to it. There's this funny thing about the music that I listened to when I was young, especially the popular stuff, the radio hits from the late 80s and the early 90s, that music was so formative for me and he had also sort of slid right past me. All the youngsters out there won't really remember Casey Kasem. He was a DJ who every week counted down the top 40 tunes in America on his show, American Top 40, and then in the late 80s, he switched to his own show, Casey's Top 40. I listened to him pretty regularly as a kid, and for a while, I really kept track of how everyone was doing. I kind of tuned in and followed the fortunes of my favorite songs. Hello again, and welcome to American Top 40. I'm Casey Kasem, and this is our countdown of the most popular popular songs in the USA. These are the 40 biggest hits of the week right out of Billboard's nationwide Listening to Casey Kasem meant I listened to a lot of popular music during that time period, but it was well before I had any real critical listening skills. I just had a pretty good ear. I knew what I liked. I just hadn't really developed it very much. There was some amazing music from that era, and every time that I returned to pop music from that time period, like the late 80s, the early 90s, I'm struck by how interesting, experimental, and exciting it is. It's something I felt when I was making my episode on Prince's Kiss. That's a song that came out in 1986. (laughs) Will I ever run out of excuses to play the intro from that song on this show? Probably not. So KISS was a song that I was very aware of when I was younger. It was on the radio. I was pretty young when it first came out, but it was still on the radio when I was a little bit older and listening to music. But I was never really that aware of how musically cool it was until I really went and picked it apart, similar to other songs that I've done from that era, like Annie Lennox's Walking on Broken Glass... Or Madonna's Like a Prayer, very similar story there, a song that I was super, super into as a kid, but I didn't think about it that much in terms of the specific musical elements. I knew abstractly that the songs that came out of the radio had been created by actual humans, but it was just that, it was an abstraction. It wasn't until almost 30 years later that I'd sit down and really learn the song and realize how great it was. But of all the recording artists I listened to as a kid in the late 80s, few were as ubiquitous or had as strong an impact on me is the artist we're gonna be talking about on this episode. Like I said, I knew what I liked, even if I wasn't able to fully articulate why. I couldn't tell you if I was hearing an acoustic piano or a synthesizer, a drum machine or a drum set. I didn't know if I was hearing swing or rock or funk, what kind of feel it was, how the thing was arranged, who produced it and why and how. I didn't have any sense of the lineage and the creative connective tissue between one song and another. I just knew what I liked and when I liked something, I listened to it ceaselessly. In 1989, my older sister came home with a new cassette tape that immediately grabbed my attention. A small black box adorned with a black and white photo of a woman in a military cap. Two large words and a date. Rhythm Nation, 1814. The cover of that tape also had a name, Janet Jackson, a singer who would loom large over my musical development in ways I didn't even internalize until many years later. So today, let's return to the Rhythm Nation and take a closer look at one of my favorite songs on that album, the beautifully hip dance floor stomper, Love Will Never Do Without You. There's so much to talk about with this incredible song, written and then co-produced with Jackson by the legendary production duo of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. If you'd ask 12-year-old me my favorite musicians, I almost certainly would have listed Janet Jackson among them. I would not, however, have listed James Harris III or Terry Lewis, but those two guys, Harris going by the moniker Jimmy Jam, were in fact just as responsible for the Janet Jackson songs I loved as the woman who sang them. Now, that's not to take away from Janet Jackson's formidable accomplishments. She was amazing. She has had an amazing career. Her creative relationship with Jim and Lewis was every bit a collaboration. The three of them worked together, co-producing and co-writing some of her most famous and influential albums from the late 1980s and the early 1990s. But in recent years, I've become more and more aware of Jam and Lewis's contributions to American music beyond just Janet Jackson. I mean, they made all kinds of incredible stuff. Listening back to their work with Janet is just amazing i've been listening to control and rhythm nation non-stop for the last couple of weeks and you gotta listen to these albums there's so much going on it's so cool it's so timeless it could come out today and it would sound exactly right That's the title track off of 1986's Control, which was a killer record. I mean, that song, just those grooves, those weird harmonies, those layered drum machines and samples, that mix of harmonic space and rhythmic busyness, it really just sounds like its own thing. It still sounds super fresh to me, even though this album came out so many years ago. So Control was the album that launched Jana Jackson's career as a solo artist. She'd had two albums before that. Those did fine, but Control was this whole other thing, and a lot of that was Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Jam and Lewis came up working with Prince in Minneapolis, and they're a big part of what's called the Minneapolis sound. They were also big contributors to a broader style of music called New Jack Swing, which was popular through the 80s and the 90s. You heard New Jack Swing music everywhere. Artists like Bobby Brown, Boys to Men. I always think of Belle Bib DeVoe's Poison, which I used to play in a cover band. It's a classic sort of New Jack Swing sound. I'm not gonna go any deeper into New Jack Swing, though it's totally worth looking into, but it is another good example of how American music is this Really rich and complex tapestry of influences it spans generations. The producer Teddy Riley played a crucial role in the rise of that style of New Jack Swing. His 1985 track, Alice I Want You Just For Me. He produced that for full force. You're hearing that in the background right here. That was cited by Jam and Lewis as a big influence on their sound. A year later they made control, and you can totally hear that groove all over control, especially in songs like Nasty. That's right. So, Control was a massive hit in 1986. It had multiple number one singles, and Jackson, Jam, and Lewis really took their time with the follow-up three years, which is a really long time really in any era, but a particularly long time then when people were making albums much faster than that. But by all accounts, they just holed up at Flight Time Productions, which is Jam and Lewis's studio in Minneapolis. They spent a bitter cold winter just in the studio, the three of them writing and producing the tracks, that would ultimately become Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814, one of the The most successful and influential pop albums of all time. So just a few bars into the opening track after my sister popped on the cassette, I was so drawn in. I didn't know what I was hearing, I just knew that I really liked it. That opening title track was almost the song that I picked for this episode. I love that tune. I love the groove on it, the harmony, everything about it. That Sly and the Family Stone sample, man, super good. The thing is, this album has a ridiculous number of great songs on it. It's always kind of been divided into two for me. There's the socially conscious songs like Rhythm Nation and State of the World. And then partway into the album, Janet explicitly introduces, like, the fun part of the album. And now we're going to go on to the dance songs.
1: Get the point? Good. Let's dance.
0: So that sets up Miss You Much, which was another monster hit off this album that's also a really good song that I almost talked about. So I knew I wanted to talk about Janet, Jam, and Lewis, I was pretty sure I wanted to do something off of Rhythm Nation, but I still wasn't totally sure what song to pick. So I listened to the album all the way through, and in the end, one song did wind up sticking out to me was a song that started like a ballad but then it quickly shifted gears to become something a lot stranger and a lot funkier those early gear shifts became a hallmark of a chimeric banger that absolutely refuses to stay in one musical mode any longer than it has to So it became clear that this song, Love Will Never Do Without You, was perfectly emblematic of Jam and Lewis's rambunctious writing and production style, while also serving as a real vocal showcase for Janet Jackson. No one song could sum up an album like Rhythm Nation, but this one comes pretty close. Love Will Never Do Without You was written by Jam and Lewis, and the original idea was that it might be a duet that Jana could sing with another male singer, maybe even with Prince. Prince would have been great on this. You could really hear... Him on this once we get into our analysis you'll start to see how well this song would have worked as a duet though it actually works really well as a solo song as well thanks to how janet sang it it's a really interesting song just in how constantly unsteady it makes me feel as a listener one minute it's all beautiful pop vocal harmonies and big synth chords Next, it's a full-on group chant bacchanal. wild just how much ground it covers in its runtime, and it's cool to consider that like three other songs on Rhythm Nation, it was a number one Billboard hit. It was actually released as the final single off of the record, which makes sense to me. Just in terms of stylistic gear shifting, it's the most complex song on the album. So let's get into it, starting with the intro, which in the course of about 25 seconds moves through three distinct musical spaces. There's space one, this beautiful synth part. Then there's space two, the kick drum set up. And then... Space three. Let's start with that lovely synth intro. This song is in the key of A flat major, which is actually true of all three of the big love song dance numbers on Rhythm Nation, Miss You Much, and Escapade are both also in A flat major, so that's probably a pretty good key for Janet to sing in, or at least that's my guess as to why they're all three in the same key. The chords here are the same as the chorus, so this is kind of the central chord progression of this song. We start in the relative minor to A flat major, so that's an F minor chord, and then like a lot of pop songs, it revolves around just a few more chords. The one major, which is A flat major, the six minor, which is F minor, the four major, which is D-flat major, and the five major, E-flat major. There is one other chord that plays an important role in this turnaround, and that's the two minor, B-flat minor. That chord turns up every time the chorus phrase ends, and it's a little bit different. It adds a little bit of spice and sort of richness to this chord progression. So we start on F minor, then we go to the four chord, D-flat, then back to F minor, then two minor, five, and then one. However, they're doing something a little bit more specific and interesting on those chords, and specifically with the melody that they're playing uh, on the right hand. Since if you notice, the example chords I just played sounded a lot more generic than what's actually on the record. So in the left hand there, you've got a basic F minor, but then in the right hand, there are three notes. In F minor, that's an F, the one, A flat, the third, and then E flat, which is the flat seventh, and that means that yet again we're using seventh chords to create a richer sound. That first chord isn't just an F minor chord, it's an F minor seven chord once you factor in the melody. The chord then changes to a D flat major, but the three-note motif in the right hand repeats with that E flat on top again, and that turns it into a D flat major nine chord, which is another nice kind of richer sound than just a basic D flat major. The right hand then goes on to play the actual melody when they sing Love Will Never Do Without You as the left hand moves through that turnaround from 6 to 2 to 5 and then finally landing on 1. Now, of course, they're not playing a piano. Jam and Lewis use a lot of pretty cool synthesizers on this album and on all of their albums. You can hear a couple of great synth sounds even here at the very beginning. I'm not going to spend too much time trying to perfectly recreate their synth or drum sounds on this episode, mostly because, like, I don't have the actual equipment that they use, and that's all a little bit out of my realm of expertise. But I know they use an Oberheim OB8 on this record, which is a descendant or a different version of the OBX synthesizer that I talked about on last year's episode on Rush's Tom Sawyer. That's a really cool synthesizer that you've heard on a million songs, one of the iconic synthesizers of the 70s and 80s. So that's not the only synth that they use on this record, but I have to assume that at least some of the sounds on this track, and probably this intro, could have been an Oberheim synthesizer. So I did my best to kind of recreate it here using some synth sounds that I have on my computer. (music) So I actually just layered two synth parts there in that little recreation. There was the electric piano motif. That's the kind of main motif playing the melody that I was talking about on the left and the right hand. But there's a second sound on top of that. It's this broader, sort of stretchier synth with a lot more reverb and a kind of longer release. It keeps climbing up to this B flat and then it does a really nice counter melody kind of climbing down during the turnaround at the end. It adds a really nice quality to the overall sound. So now listen to the actual recording and see if you can pick out those two synth parts and try to keep them separate in your mind, and then we'll keep moving through this intro. So now that you've kind of warmed up your ears by listening to those layered synth parts, I hope you're already starting to hear just all of the different layers, like how much is going on just in this intro, it's a really rich recording overall to the point where I'm just like not going to be able to break down every single little sound, every little bit of ear candy that Jam and Lewis have stuck in there in various places because there's way too much. And that was kind of a hallmark of their style. It's really busy, but it's also very tasteful. There's always kind of a purpose to everything that's happening. But just here on the intro, you can hear after the synth's finish, there's kind of this digital wind chime that comes in. I don't think that's an analog wind chime. I think it's a digital one, but it kind of tinkles and adds this sort of magical fairy dust over the sound as the kick drum comes in and the kick drum is its own whole thing. So now the kick drum, there are a lot of classic 80s drum sounds on Rhythm Nation, and really those sounds kind of became classic, at least in part because they were on Rhythm Nation. Though Jam and Lewis had already been establishing a sort of, you know, vocabulary of drum sounds that were becoming pretty iconic. So on Control, they use a lindrum, which is a really common drum machine from the 1980s. I talked about that actually on last year's episode about Prince's Kiss. He also used a lindrum on that recording to get all of those drum sounds on that. However on Rhythm Nation, they switched to a new drum machine, an Emu SP-1200. That's another classic drum machine that's a sampler. It has a pretty different sound. It's all about the kind of lower, kind of degraded samples because it has a lower sample rate. Um, I don't have one, I'm not a sampler expert, but uh, that's kind of why it sounds the way that it does. And it's really associated with classic hip hop from that sort of 80s, 90s golden age of hip hop. That's a clip from a beat making demo on YouTube by Chief Rugged. I'll link it in the show notes. It's a great video. He just kind of makes this beat. You can kind of watch him do it, but he doesn't talk. He just does it and you can sort of figure out what's going on. He samples a bunch of different sounds from vinyl, you know, some of those, those harmonies and those chords he gets from different records. Then he combines that with drum sounds that he's using to sort of, you know, sequence using the drum machine. And he builds this just totally killer groove, it's just drowning in vibe, and that all comes down to the sound of the SP-1200, which like I said, it's due to the sampling engine and the fact that it actually samples at a lower sample rate, so the sound quality is kind of degraded, sort of similar to when I was talking about, you know, exporting an MP3 at a lower bit rate. Anyway, I'm not an expert and I certainly don't have an SP-1200, that'd be really cool, but I don't have one and I've never used one, um, so I'll just say that they use that on this and all of these drum sounds, or at least most of these drum sounds are coming from the that drum machine this is an sp1200 kick and if you listen you'll hear that the kick hits and then there's a second hit a 16th note after it, it gives it this sort of heartbeat sound boom 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 kind of like that so i'm never 100 on this kind of stuff but my guess is that they're using a digital reverb to get that sound probably an rmx-16 that was kind of the go-to digital reverb of the 1980s you could easily control the pre-delay on that reverb unit, and that's the amount of time between the initial sound and the reverb kicking in. So if you extend the pre-delay, it just takes longer for the reverb to get back to you. If you picture yelling into a really reverberant room, you hear yourself immediately, but if you yell into a canyon, or maybe like a large room in a cave, you won't hear the reverb come back to you until way, way later. That's just like a really, really long natural pre-delay. So the RMX-16, that's a digital reverb and it makes it very easy to tweak the pre-delay. You can just measure it out until it's right where you want it. So I'll just take a basic, you know, SP-1200-ish kick drum sound like this, and then I'll turn on an RMX-16, adjust the pre-delay just so, and I'll get that same kind of sound. Yeah. God, that snare drum sound. Okay, so hopefully, longtime listeners are picking out some of the other sounds that are going on in there. There's definitely a reversed sound, which I've talked about a lot of times. Jamin and Lewis loved using reversed sounds to just kind of swell and stretch into downbeats. That's what's going on here. It's some sort of like slowed down cymbal hit or something reversed. Um, It's this sound. That actually sounds the same going forwards and backwards. I tried reversing it, it basically sounds the same, but it still sounds like a reversed sample to me. There's also this other funky sample that comes in. It's kind of stereo panned wah-wah like And then there's that one of a kind snare drum sound that sets up the downbeat. And then the downbeat actually features yet another really famous sample. I want to get into that groove, though, so let's listen to this intro one more time and just open up your ears and try to take it all in. It's a very chaotic musical landscape. There's already a whole lot going on, and there's just going to be more as we get going, but see if you can hear everything we talked about, those layered synths at the beginning, followed by the wind chimes on top and that bouncing pre-delay reverb kick drum down low, the introduction of that reversed effect and that wah-wah sample, and finally that snare hit into the downbeat which lands, like I said, on another very famous sample. Alright, ears on, here we go. There's no mistaking a Jam and Lewis groove from this era. It's got such a strong identity. The way that they combine sampled sound effects, drum sounds, synths, and actual recorded samples from previous recordings, it's so distinct. I used the word rambunctious before, and I do think that's really the word for it. Lots of people have talked about how Jam and Lewis channeled the sounds of the city, which is also true. They actually used, sometimes they would use sound effects from the city, like cars and other sounds that you would hear in a city, to build their grooves. To me, and I think maybe it's partly because i associate this music so much with my childhood but it kind of sounds like saturday morning cartoons to me if that makes any sense it's so unrestrained and joyful it's like pots and pans banging together as a cartoon cat and mouse run around a hand-drawn kitchen So this groove, it's a really distinct groove. It's put together out of a lot of different samples and instrumental parts and pieces. Let's rebuild it. First of all, there's that snare drum. It's some kind of killer snare drum sample. It's put through a kind of a gated reverb so that it blasts out to the sides and then that reverb cuts off with that gate. So it gives it this really nice kind of explosive feeling each time it hits. Rather than try to recreate it though, I just grabbed it from the recording and put it into my own sampler, ha! and now I can play it whenever I want. As far as I can tell, the kick drum is doing the same thing that it was doing during the intro. It's still got that kind of bounce back, digital reverb on it. So that's the thump, the kick drum, and the pop, the snare. What about the sizzle? Well, the sizzle is provided by a hi-hat sound. It's panned over to the right. It's sort of a mix of samples. They play this kind of jumpy 16th note figure that's got some 16th rests in there as well. And that just sort of adds some subdivision and chops things up as a sizzle is wont to do, adding more subdivision in between the thump and the pop. So let's start our recreation there with the thump, the pop, and the sizzle. Let's hear those three elements together. That actually really does take me back to the late 80s, just hearing that combination of sounds. It was just very much in style then. And you don't hear some of those sounds that often today, but I think they still sound really good. And they're just, it's like a time capsule, really. So that's kind of the spine of the groove, and it's a pretty distinctive spine. I mean, the thump and the pop in particular are pretty distinctive sounding on this recording, but there are a bunch of limbs attached to that spine, and those make the groove even more distinct. Listen to the main recording again and see if you can pick out the extra stuff that's layered on top. So first there's that sound on the downbeat which I referenced earlier and it sounds for all the world to me like an orchestra hit sample. The orchestra hit is a very common sound in 80s and 90s music. It was a sample that appeared actually on a lot of um, keyboards, like Casio keyboards, that I'm guessing some listeners had growing up. I had a Casio Rapman that uh, had the orchestra hit effect, and it makes me think of that. But then it also just makes me think of the music of that era. There were orchestra hits all over music in the 80s and the 90s. There's orchestra hits all over Control, like one of the primary hooks on When I Think of You, which is another huge hit off of Control. It's just orchestra hits all the way down. Man, what a good record. Janet Jackson had a lot of good records. Um, The orchestra hit has a really interesting history. I recommend this video by Vox's Estelle Caswell from a few years back. She did it for their excellent Earworm series on YouTube. She does the whole history of the orchestra hit, like, all the way back to the beginning. It's a really, really fun, really well-made video that I'll link in the show notes. Anyways, I totally hear that orchestra hit, maybe mixed with some other synth or something. It's definitely very prominent on that first downbeat. Here's the thing though, I'm pretty sure that I hear that sample or one like it a lot more commonly used in this recording than just when it's used as an accent downbeat, which is, you know, really clear. It's kind of in the front of the mix. I also am actually kind of hearing it uh, down in the kick drum. This is just me kind of going off of my ears. I'm not totally positive, but I hear the sound of the orchestra hit down in the kick on a low A flat, kind of providing a bit of the base of this because when you listen to the groove, it's actually a little bit nebulous, what's going on on the bottom and what's providing the harmonic base of this recording. Harry Lewis played bass on this track, and you can hear his bass in there, though it's mixed in a way that it doesn't come through super clearly throughout the recording, but he's just kind of down there laying A-flats and doing some slapping that might be a synth to a little bit higher in various syncopated places, but I'm hearing something else along with the electric bass on that A-flat, and it's either an orchestra hit or a synthesizer that sounds a lot like it. There's also this sample that alternates between the left and the right channels. I'm not sure what it is. It almost sounds like it could be a guitar or maybe a synth. It's this like kind of a sound. Um, I'm just going to replicate it with my voice since that'll get the job done. Boom, boom. It'll sound good in context, okay? Uh, The last thing that I want to highlight is this really great little accent hit. It's this kind of crashy, cymbal, clappy, sampled sound. It rings out every so often as two eighth notes on the three. It's like... It's such a perfect little accent. It really just puts the groove over the top. It's just this nice little extra flavor. It's perfectly picked. It's maybe my favorite thing about this groove, even though I know it's kind of little, it's just like the little head bob, kind of carries the whole groove forward every time it comes in. Okay, so those are the core elements of this groove. Here's my little recreation of it, and listen for each of those things. Just try to pick them all out individually, and also pay attention to all the little ways that they lock together. Makes this groove sound chaotic, but also super tightly controlled. Here we go. Alright, well that's the backbone of the song. Let's get into the first verse. that's the verse. It's pretty simple. It's divided into two parts. There's this very simple sung melody. It's just kind of the first three notes of the A flat major over this vamp, just that vamping groove in A flat. And then it goes up to the four chord, up to a D flat major nine. And it gets a little bit more lush. Some synths kind of come in and the vocals go a little bit higher than they were during the opening phrases. The notable thing about the opening verse is how Janet sings it. She sings it down the octave. She's very low. And they've also kind of EQ'd her voice in an interesting way there's this kind of sharpened boxy EQ effect on her voice, like they've rolled off the highs and the lows, and they only do that here, and I think the reason for that is that they're trying to make her sound like a different voice, because remember this was written originally as a duet, and this would have been the male voice, and you can kind of imagine Prince or someone who kind of sounds like him singing this part, so they're making Janet into a kind of different character by having her sing lower and giving her this slightly tweaked EQ setting which is a pretty cool approach So it's really in that second part of the verse where they go to the four chord, that D-flat major 9, that's where they introduce the first hints of the kind of lush pop sounds that this song incorporates, but always very judiciously. It's never enough to get too far from that underlying groove, just enough to leave me wanting more. I always want more from this song, and I actually think that's kind of a cool thing about it. So I can't quite pick out everything that's happening here. There's some synth pads that just kind of flesh out that D-flat major 7 sound. I hear this kind of a piano. There's some kind of a piano sound that comes over on the right. And I also hear this pretty clear... Chorus Stratocaster sound A Stratocaster guitar over on the Left with a lot of reverb on it That's a little bit odd because there's no Credited guitar player in the liner notes for This tune Um, but that sound actually Turns up at a few crucial points including Here so either somebody played guitar And they went uncredited or This is a sampled guitar it could be either Either way it adds a nice just little Bit of that 80s pop sound The way that a strat in the second pickup position just Has a certain sound Um, I talked about This on my episode about Madonna's Like a Prayer, for example, it's just a sound, especially with a little bit of chorus, that you would hear all over the place in pop music of this era. So it's really identifying that we're sort of in a more luscious pop sound just for these few bars while we're on that D-flat major 9 before they transition back to the A-flat and that just that vampy groove in A-flat. So listen to that four chord again and I'll play along with that guitar counter melody and just try to hear all those new little layers that they've introduced harmonically before they transition back to the more sparse groove-oriented A-flat thing. Here we go. I love that little orchestra hit right there on the downbeat back to A flat. The orchestra hit is just everywhere. Once you start hearing it, you'll just start hearing it everywhere, like this little recurring character in the background of every scene. Up <laughs> out All right, time for the chorus. They So like everything else on this song, the layering on that chorus is really nuanced and interesting. Harmonically, it's pretty straightforward. It follows the same chord progression as the intro that we already went over. They say it wouldn't last, goes into F minor. We had to prove them wrong, goes into D flat, the four chord. And then they do that same turnaround, F minor to B flat minor to E flat dominant to A flat major. Just a big six, two, five, one. It's a nice progression and a nice melody on its own, but there's much more going on than that if you listen to it. So listen again and see what else you hear outside of the melody and the harmony. super hip really lovely stuff the most striking thing is those backup vocals pan to the left and the right I believe that's all Janet Jackson just multi-tracked before we get into that though there's actually one other thing going on that I want to point out there's a sound doubling the melody right there in the middle I don't know if you heard it but it's that orchestra hit sound again doubling the melody along with Janet and I know it kind of sounds like I'm being paranoid that I'm hearing the orchestra hit everywhere and like I said there's a chance this is some custom sample combo synth sound or something like that but I hear it it really sounds like an orchestra hit to me and I think it's pretty funny that it's doubling the melody uh, right there in the middle of the mix listen for it in the middle it's right moving right along with Janet's voice I'm not crazy right it's in there It really is all about those backup vocals though. Those vocal harmonies are really cool. They're what make this whole chorus work for me. It's a great example of how backup vocal harmony arranging in pop music can really enhance a melody by adopting very different phrasing and emitting certain words from the lyrics compared with the lead melody part. So if you think of straight one-to-one vocal harmony, what I kind of think of as parallel vocal harmony, you imagine something where all of the singers are singing the same words with the same rhythms, they're just singing different notes and that adds harmony. To go back to another old episode of Strong Songs, the vocal harmonies on Fleetwood Mac's The Chain are a great example of this, it's a more parallel approach to vocal harmony. Janet, Jam, and Lewis have taken a different approach to the background harmonies on the chorus to Love Will Never Do Without You. Rather than singing last on They Said It Wouldn't Last, it's just kind of laaath, becomes an even softer kind of ah, and it just keeps going on that sound through the second phrase. We had to prove them wrong. That's actually just ah in the (laughs) back. And you might have heard there on the lyric wrong. We had to prove them wrong. They kind of go, rah, and just hold that note as well. And then on the lyric, because I've learned in the past, they do the same thing. Instead of singing past, they just go, pa, and then hold a note. So right up until the lyric, love will never do without you, there's so little going on in the backup vocals in terms of consonants or lyrics that they almost function more like synth pads pan to the left and the right. That's the first part of the chorus. The backup vocals are pretty indistinct lyrically speaking. They're singing long vowels that start with the same onset consonants as the corresponding lyric in the lead vocals. So we get la, ra, and pa while the lead vocal just moves through the lyrics. But then, the backup parts join in with the lead vocals for Love Will Never Do Without You, of course, the title of the song, which adds a lot of emphasis and weight to that lyric, though they still are in contrast to the lead part, because the lead part sings the melody That love will never do without you but the backup vocals provide a real contrast to that descending melody and to just the motion, the sort of amount of harmonic motion going on during this whole section, which, remember, is that turnaround where it goes through the 2-5-1 chord progression. The backup vocals just hold this single, unmoving chord through the whole thing as they sing that lyric. It's a really cool way of coming together with the lead part while also still providing contrast. Listen to that part and pay attention to how the lead melody has a lot of vertical motion while the backup vocals stay in one place. I love that kind of backup harmony. It sounds so cool when you're kind of matching up with what the lead part is doing, but you're staying put in another way. So you're having all this contrast. It gives your ears a lot to do, even if you don't realize that they're doing it. And it's what makes this chorus sound so cool. That love will never do without you. That final chord there is really cool too. So the song goes back to A flat major. That's the one. They're back at the verse. The verse groove kind of reestablishes itself. But the vocal harmonies carry over the shape they had going during the chorus. And that had this really prominent B flat in it. So you wind up with this really nice sounding A flat sus nine chord that the backup vocals carry over into the next verse. Even as the rest of the ensemble returns to the verse groove, it's this kind of lush echo of the chorus. Just some really tasty vocal arranging. So let's listen back to the chorus one more time and really focus on all the stuff I just talked about. Try to hear how there's that orchestra hit kind of sound doubling the lead melody, but really focus on those backup parts. They're panned to the left and the right, how they start wide and out of focus, just singing la, pa, and then they snap into focus around the title lyric, Love Will Never Do Without You, and then they carry over this suspended chord, this A flat sus nine, onto the downbeat and into the groove for the next verse. Alright well let's get into the second verse and if this were a duet, this would be the verse that Janet sings as herself. So, yeah, this second verse is Janet singing as herself. The first verse was conspicuously gender neutral when you think about it in terms of the lyrics. The second one isn't. She sings, Other guys have tried before to replace you as my lover. She sings, Boy, it's you. I can't do without. There's also another familiar sound in on the melody, another sort of orchestra hitty kind of sound effect or sample going along with the melody. It's sort of adding body to the sound of the melody now that Janet is singing up the octave. It doesn't play every note, it's more like the fulcrum points on the melody, but it's it's very present in the mix. Listen for it. Oh, This one does sound a little bit different and there are just various combinations of the orchestra hit effect out there, but it is that sound that Jam and Lewis love so much. Vocally, for Janet, this is way more in her vocal sweet spot up the octave here. She's way more expressive when she gets to sing here. She sounds great on this song and there are even times, especially a little bit later, where she sounds a little bit like Mariah Carey to me, which is funny because Mariah was just about to break into the mainstream. She made her big debut in 1990, so there was that music was already in the air, that style was kind of out there and Janet was doing it too this song really kind of has that energy Oh man, I love that so much. I love that laugh. I love how it's kind of a call to the organ riff, and it, it really kind of feels like Janet playing around with Jam and Lewis, just the way that she laughs. Ooh. Then the organ kind of plays over on the left. And then that's just capped by that little kah kah high cymbal hit that I love so much. Then Janet does that little freestyle like you do, 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 baby. Like you do, 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 baby. This perfectly timed sequence of four things. Laugh, organ, cymbals, vocal freestyle. It's a real moment that they captured. Each thing just bounces off of the previous thing and it's a great way to end the verse and set up the next chorus. Alright, let's keep going. This second chorus is much more intense and higher energy than the first chorus, and it's entirely because of where Janet is at vocally. She's now singing up the octave, so she's singing this whole chorus up the octave as well, which is a lot higher. She's also adding a lot of those sort of percussive utterances that her brother was so famous for. She's doing something very similar that, like, ah, at the end of a phrase. So compare the energy on the first chorus. to the energy on the second one, and they keep the intensity up this time by adding something new at the end. Okay, so those four bars, that post-chorus that comes in after the second chorus, that is my favorite part of this entire song. It's the part of this song that, when I listen to this again for the first time in I don't know how many decades, it just immediately grabbed me. My ear remembered where it was going, and I could remember how it felt to listen to this when I was a kid, when I was like 10 or 11 years old. When I say that this song always leaves me wanting more, it's because I always want more of those four bars it's such a killer homecoming section the chorus resolves to an a flat major but then they go into this new chord progression a descending thing it starts on a flat major then it goes to a flat over g flat then d flat over f and then it sounds to me like they go to d flat minor the four minor so a d flat minor over e As they do that, there's this lovely descending keyboard melody that just repeats these four notes walking down the A flat major scale. That nice stratty guitar sound is over on the left too. And the backup vocals are in as well. They're just singing descending. But then on that final chord, they do this and they come out of that four minor. It's so beautiful. The whole section is just dreamy. It's grand. It's great. So from there, it's time to circle all the way back around to the intro for the first of several group sing breakdowns. So here at the start of what would be the third verse, the song does another big gear shift. It turns into a vamp on that A-flat groove and just stays there for an extended period. They bring up some actual backup vocalists and the whole group of them kicks off a big group chant section. So this part of the song is funny because I don't actually have a whole lot of analysis to do on it, like on the specifics of what they're doing. I do love how they've arranged and mixed it. Some of the vocals have what sounds almost like a filter or an octave dropper or something. It gives it this otherworldly, very funky effect. This part in particular really could be a Prince song. But mostly it's just really interesting structurally because it's not the third verse. I mean, ordinarily a song would go to a verse here or maybe a bridge. It's kind of a bridge, I guess, but it's really just a breakdown with this big weird chant that goes on for a while like the a chant it's love will never do that one's kind of the first chant and then they switch to what i think of as the b chant which is a little bit more of a sung chant It rules and they really let it go. I mean, this thing just hangs out for a long time. They just are leaving space for people to dance, to really get into it, for everyone to chant along. I'm sure that when Janet does this live, everybody sings along with this part. And after yet another go round through the intro, they return to the chant again. Janet sets it up in a pretty sassy way. Then on this second chant breakdown, there's an unexpected trumpet cameo. That's the great Herb Alpert on the trumpet. I mean, this is just a party. Like this song is totally transformed into something very different and very fun. So they just ride this out until there's nothing left to do but bring it back to the chorus. Love Will Never Do Without You has three choruses, and each chorus is more intense and high energy than the one before it. This third one is The Peak, and this is where Janet's singing really gets to shine. When I was talking about how some of this makes me think of what Mariah would do a little bit later, this part really kind of sounds like Mariah. She's doing all this freestyling in her upper register. She's really delivering. She's spitting out so many great ideas here. She's just keeping the energy going, mixing things up, eventually overdubbing and harmonizing with herself, before finally climbing to the peak of her vocal register to take us home. And that's it. That's the end of the song. But man, let me tell you, I never want it to end there. I can never remember being satisfied by that ending because I want that final descending post-chorus to just go on forever. There's this youthful exuberance to this song. It, it's partly because I listened to it when I was young, because I associate it with my childhood, but I just, that feeling, the feeling of that post chorus, when it starts going, when those chords start descending, when it starts building, I just don't want it to end. And I wouldn't presume to change the song, just like I can't change the past, like I can't go back and extend those moments when life was new and music was pure joy, but I can finally extend this post chorus. I can, if you'll indulge me, finally let this song end the way I always wished it would. But you know, there's one more thing this outro could use. I think it could use a sax solo. here we are. I wish this moment could go on forever, even while I know that it can't. But after all these years at long last, I feel like I've finally heard what I needed to hear. An extended joyous jam at the end of an extended joyous song, the end product of three artists sitting in a room bouncing off of one another, channeling samples and sounds from the studio, the streets, and the symphony into a stone pop masterpiece. They say you can't go home again, but this is the next best thing. And after all these years, I'm finally ready for the song to end. I'm ready for Janet, Jam, and Lewis to take us home. that'll do it for my analysis of Janet Jackson's Love Will Never Do Without You, one of my favorite of the many, many classics that she made with the great duo Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, you'll consider spreading the word and telling someone about it. I always feel like more people should be listening to this show and that there are people out there who would like this show if they heard it, but they just don't know about it yet. So if you know someone like that, well, you know what to do. Tell them about it, and then they'll like the show and they'll think of you every time they listen to it, and they'll be like, wow, my really good friend told me about this cool show that i like. Thanks to all of my patrons and other supporters. This is a totally listener-supported show, as I always mention. I recently posted my first Patreon bonus episode in the Patreon bonus podcast feed. It's just a short little take on the new Muse 20th anniversary remix of Origin of Symmetry. That was fun to do. And if you want to hear that and get more little bonuses like that down the road, go to patreon.com/slash strong songs to sign up. You can also directly donate via PayPal if you're not into the recurring payment thing. A few people had requested that, and there is now a PayPal link down in the show. Donuts. Next episode will be a mailbag, so send me your best musical questions to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. I always love to hear whatever musical things you all are wondering about. I haven't gotten as many new outro soloists here in year three. COVID has definitely made it harder to find new folks to record with, but I definitely would like to feature some new voices in the future, so hopefully there will be some new outro soloists at some point in the future here. But at least in the meantime, I've got some pretty good solos saved up that I can reuse. Speaking of that, this episode's outro soloist is my buddy Dan Nervo on the electric guitar, one of the first solos anyone recorded for this show. So stick around for Dan, and I'll see you all in two weeks for more strong songs i